Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by Humanitarian AI meetup groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, in Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Chris Hoffman, and today I'm going to be interviewing Gaurav Namade, formerly with Google AI and was the first product manager on Google Lambda. Listening in today is Megan DiMatteo with Humanitarian AI, and it's going to be great to have her with us throughout this process. Today, Gaurav is currently building a startup in the generative AI space and is also a product management coach. Gaurav, welcome. It's really nice to have you here. Hey, Chris. Hey, Megan. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited about our chat. So we're going to be speaking to Gaurav a little bit today about the powerful new generative machine learning models like Google's Lambda and the types of new chatbots and search engines will see these models in power in 2023. I mean, ChatGPT is out there, right? We've been hearing a lot about it. Today, Microsoft announced a $10 billion investment. You know, are they going to buy it or what's going to happen? So I definitely want to dig into that a little bit and get your thoughts on that. But for myself, look, I've been involved in humanitarian action since about 1999 with the UN, with different NGOs. Now I run my own organization called Humanity Link. And what Humanity Link does is bring in tech companies into the humanitarian sector. Look at those tip of the spear technologies, trying to see how they can be applied in our work in crisis situations. So I'm really happy to be here and I'm really happy to be guest hosting. I want to thank Brent Phillips for inviting me in again to do this time with you, Gaurav and with you, Megan. So look, before we get started, I mean, Gaurav, can you take a minute and just introduce yourself and tell us who you are and how your journey's been throughout the last few years? Yeah, for sure. So uh, my name is Gaurav Nimade. I grew up in India. As a quick background, so I, I've always been like excited about technology growing up as a kid back in India, excited about computers, excited about electronics. Decided to study computer science and engineering at one of the IITs in India. And then uh, eventually did a small startup gig like a decade ago, roughly trying to build something in the fintech domain. Eventually landing up at Google and spending majority of my career at Google. So I spent about nine years at Google. Uh, first few of them were with the Google Payments Trust and Safety Team, where we were trying to fight abuse and fraud on Google Payments. And the last five years, uh, 2017 to 2022, I was uh, part of the Google's artificial intelligence team, where I was a go-to-market product manager for research technologies. So essentially, these researchers will come up with like really cool AI technologies. And as a PM there, my job was to figure out what is the product strategy? How do we make money out of it? What is the go-to-market for some of these technologies? So uh, been very closely associated with the AI field for last several years and it's super exciting to see all this like cutting edge over the last couple of years. It's exciting and scary at the same time for me personally, uh, but we can get to that uh, in our conversation, but that's a little bit about me. No, that's great. Yeah, I'm not going to bring up the word sentient throughout this conversation. So I just <laughs> promise that we're not going to say anything around that. Okay, so, so singularity, those types of words, any of those big S words, we'll keep out of the conversation today. Um, <laughs> sure. But look, you know, for our listeners who are a mix of students, they're researchers, AI developers, humanitarian actors, what's a good way to really break this down? You know, describe these generative machine learning models. What's different about them compared to how Google search works, for example? What's new? What's different? Why is Google scared of ChatGPT, right? What made that whole conversation that uh, we saw the CEO of Google standing up saying, red alert, red flag. This is craziness, what's going on right now. Why is this technology so important? Yeah, so 
I think, first of all, I, I want to clarify something that you said. I don't think Google is scared with ChatGPT at this point of time. The code red that uh, is popular in media at this point of time, I think that's not really like we are betting the company on it or our company will go bankrupt if like we don't do anything about it. It's more <laughs> around probably rallying a bunch of teams together and, you know, adding more force behind a particular effort and moving yeah. fast in that direction. So code reds were like not very uncommon. I would say we roughly had one code red every like maybe one, two, two, two years uh, in different teams across Google. So uh, generally, I don't think Google is scared at this point of time. There are a couple of things uh, with respect to search and chat GPT that I would like to highlight. The first one is, I think, in terms of the technology, like Google has one of the best research labs, AI research labs in the world as well. So in terms of the skills and capabilities, I don't think Google Lambda or Google's like any other technology is far behind than what OpenAI probably has. So technologically, I think both of these companies are at the right place. It's just that OpenAI has probably more risk in terms of how they give access to the developer community to this technology. Google is a bit more concerned about, let's say, brand reputation and risk reputation if something is uh, something that is not factually correct goes out. And then Google's brand takes a hit that, hey, Google is a search engine or Google is a search company and it is giving me an incorrect information. That might be a challenge for Google. So I guess that's generally what my general take is between like to the point that you mentioned about like is Google scared about chat GPT? I don't think that is the case at all at this point of time. In terms of your other point that you were mentioning about Google search versus chat GPT, I think there is a very strong fundamental difference in how these systems work today. And I feel that this distance for sure will merge or reduce in the next couple of years. So search typically is a process in which you do like a few things. You crawl the web and you store like index the data. The second part is you figure out how to like rank that data according to what the user's query is and figuring out, you know, what is the quality of the page and which page is more relevant for the user's query and so on. Large language models, on the other hand, are kind of completely different beast. What they do is they read data across the internet and try to figure out patterns from that. So a simplest language model, the way it works is it's a probabilistic model. It tries to figure out what is the next word in the sentence. So for example, if you are you say that, hey, chat GPT or hey, Lambda, tell me, like write an essay about Albert Einstein. What it will do is, let's say it will start with first two, three words saying that Albert Einstein was, and then it will figure out what is the next word, a physicist. And then it will figure out the next word probabilistically, who was born in, and similarly, it will kind of go on probabilistically generating these responses. So there's no concept of factuality in there embedded in these systems. These systems are just identifying patterns that they see yeah. across the web. Now, if there is wrong training data that is served to these uh, models, then they would spew out wrong information. And that's some of the challenges that ChatGPT sees today with respect to like providing wrong information or having bias in the data because that's what they have learned generally. So long story short, ChatGPT, I think, is not really an information retrieval system at this point of time. Works very differently from Google Search. Uh, but uh, in the long run, there might be opportunities how these systems can collaborate or can work with each other. As a journalist and as a freelance writer, you know, I've written for everything from independent blogs to, you know, I, I was on staff at CNBC for a year and a half. And everybody, of course, is optimizing content for Google search. And so I was wondering, um, Gaurav, if you could actually just elaborate a little bit on what you said. I love the distinction that you drew between the two. And can you just like just talk a little bit about how 
that content is ranked for Google search? Because I know that one of the qualifiers is that they're looking almost to see, to make sure that humans had a hand in creating that content. How are they actually, uh, how is the Google crawler actually ranking the quality of that content based on the human the human touch, so to speak, and also what is it called? Domain authority or you know the, the authoritativeness of that content, distinguishing it from something that was put together by a language model, for example. So I think there are two points with respect to this figure that I, I would want to cover. The first one is let's talk about the quality and how does Google ranking generally works. And the second part, if I can uncover, is like, what happens if a language model starts producing this content? Can Google search essentially figure out or like would SEO go for a toss essentially, right? That's a really good question. And uh, I don't know if I know the entire answer to this, but I have a strong perspective on how this is going to play out. So for the first one around how Google search ranks or how quality is determined. So Google search is not like a single system where you provide something to the system and it figures out. They're like teams of 3,000, 4,000 people working on it. It's like hundreds or thousands of different components built into it. So the quality, for example, of a particular page will have different aspects to it. The most famous that the world knows about is like page rank. What is the authority of the domain? How many domains are referring to this particular page in terms of you know building that reputation? So similar to PageRank, there are like a ton of different metrics and ton of different ways uh, the ranking and the quality of the page is determined. The second part where what would the future look like if the language models are able to produce some of these things? And that's a real, real problem, in my opinion, that Google has to solve at this point of time. Because uh, let's say keywords is one of the big things that Google search ranking takes into account. Like for the particular query, what are the right set of keywords? And if an article contains these right set of keywords, then uh, that article is correct. Or if that website contains these keywords, then that website is high quality. Now, there is a real threat that a blog or a website might take, let's say, seven weeks to write 50 articles. But now with ChatGPT, you can potentially do that in seven hours. So what happens to the SEO, right? So that is like a huge challenge that I think Google will have to figure out in the future. The way I feel this is going to play out is that it'll be a cat and mouse game. And that's typically how the SEO system is, right? Like people try to figure out what is a loophole and then Google tries to fix it. And then people try to figure out a loophole and then uh, Google fixes it, right? So in this case, the, the cat and mouse game will be between can Google have anti-LLM algorithms, for example, which can identify whether this content was written by an AI. So that's one. Like, Can they build those discriminatory algorithms to understand if that is possible? The second is, uh, and this is probably the harder one, is what if the content that the AI has created is actually high quality and it is adding value to the users? What do you do in that case? right? So maybe in that case, Google will have to completely rethink how the page quality basically comes in. Just to throw out a fact, like at this point of time, like generative AI is very early. And in the next five to 10 years, it's hard to imagine where we'll be, right? And like if machines are making our work easier in terms of producing this content, I think we should leverage them for the benefit of, uh, of, of the content economy and internet, right? So essentially, I think that's kind of an open question in terms of if the content is high quality, what does Google do? And how does the SEO and all of those things happen? I do not maybe have a clear answer to that at this point of time. Awesome. Thank you. Wow, you're absolutely right. That was a super solid answer. Yeah, um, and just to interrupt real quick, you know, I think that was great too. It was good. This is Brent just listening in. And, you know, you have initiatives like the International Aid Transparency Initiative, and it encourages humanitarian organizations to share their data. And you could actually have ChatGPT encapsulate like a huge data file 
into a paragraph to describe it. But you're right, that paragraph, if it doesn't get ranked right, we'll never hear what that organization did. So, And wow. to your point, Gaurav, like it, just because it was created by a chatbot, it doesn't mean it's not valuable. It could be very factual and it could have been reviewed and edited and signed off on by a human. So, yeah. I think the important part for me, Gaurav, is when we look at something like Signpost, and I don't know if you're aware of Signpost, but what Signpost does is it does a lot of scraping. So it's um, it's scraping based on the needs of people in a displaced setting. And then what it's doing is, is identifying the needs of those people in those displaced settings and then creating content around that to answer those issues that they're facing, right? But it's not automated. It's human-centered. But this idea of being able to create these opportunities to direct something like Lambda or ChatGPT or something else, being able to, even if it's a, a premium product, that you can push it around certain keywords, that it's going to start to generate content in a certain geography about a certain issue for you. And then you can verify those answers. Like, are we going to get community verification on chat GPT, just like you do with Wikipedia? Is that how it's going to turn out in the future where people are going to validate the answers that are given and saying, actually, this is the exact right answer. So when you search it, this is what it's going to pull out. So um, I wonder, we've been looking at how does AI influence humanitarian action. And for me, it's around like if I'm in Venezuela and I want to know I lost my birth certificate um, and I'm leaving Venezuela and I'm, I'm on my way on my migrant journey and I want to get my birth certificate. I need to find out what's the best way to get my birth certificate. So I type into Google right right now and say, how do I get a Venezuelan birth certificate from Ecuador or whatever? Right. You know, but if we can create a more user friendly environment for those answers to come in through what we're seeing that ChatGPT is able to, to do and we're able to validate that service. I mean, that's that's super impactful for people on the move, for people that are displaced. How do they access services, et cetera? Do you think it's going to take that move? Do you think there's going to be an opportunity to be able to have those types of premium services around these AI, these generative models that's going to allow us to say, okay, we're going to validate everything that comes out from this on Venezuela to make sure that it can be used for people in need? Yeah, so if I understand your question correctly, you're saying, I think there are two parts to your question. The first one is, can something like ChatGPT be used for question and answering for humanitarian use cases? And the second part to it is how does the factual factuality review of something like this might work and if that would be possible? Yes and yes, absolutely, yeah. Got it. So on the first one, I think uh, for sure, like for conversational systems, I think question and answering is going to be the key. And for humanitarian use cases, uh, you can surely have uh, chatbots or you can surely have the interface where people can like build something on top of ChatGPT. let's say once the API is open and once the fine tuning of the model is uh, is available. The way I think it's going to work is uh, very similar to how, how I think GPT-3 does it at this point of time, where OpenAI will probably release, let's say, ChatGPT. On top of that, they will give you an opportunity to fine tune the model on a certain data set. And that's where the opportunity would be. So you'll have this like base model. And then on top of that, let's say you come up with 100,000 conversations about or 50,000 conversations about, let's say, birth certificates in Venezuela, 
right? And then based on that conversation, or it could be related to other humanitarian efforts as well. Like based on those conversations, you get a model which is basically helping people find answers really quickly. And you as the humanitarian actor, because you are curating this data, we can trust you that you have like the right set of data and trustworthy data. And based on that, the, the, the system is providing right information. For the second part, which is, can there be an opportunity to, you know, have a human in the loop to check the factuality on top of a generative model like chat GPT? I think doing that at a general level is probably going to be very difficult. Like if you're trying to do it on a general chat GPT, I think that's like a very difficult task just because the scale of it, the way uh, OpenAI has trained the model or let's say even Lambda, if you read the paper, the way they have trained these models is they would have these couple of hundred thousand conversations with raters and from that they will fine tune this like language model, the base model, which is trained on everything from like Reddit to Wikipedia to all of the things on the internet. Now, 100,000 conversations cannot possibly have everything factually, you know, every, like, it cannot have everything or all the information in the world, right? So if you ask about the topic that is not in these 140,000 conversations, there are chances that something is off on Reddit and then it picks up that and then kind of gives that as an answer. So I think uh, the, the, the human, just using the humans to review the factuality it's possible for a like a sub-segment but to be able to do it generally across these models is going to be a huge challenge and i think that is one of the biggest things that the researchers have to figure out how do you add factuality in the models without relying on humans significantly absolutely i mean if you think about google right they don't ask you how well was this search done for you did this search give you the answers that you needed right there's a general assumption that comes with a Google search that what you are seeing, and there's a number of reasons for that, whether it be marketing and money, et cetera, ads and all those things, that what you received is gonna be the best answer that you were searching for. But in the humanitarian sector, due to the, the cynicism that kind of comes with this or the risk aversion that comes with it, this idea of being able to validate and have a scored answer, right, could be something that would be you know, at the end of your chat GPT, whenever it gives you the answer, you say, was this answer, does this answer look correct or not? You know, five to one. I don't know how that plays into the algorithm, but I think that that's, that's something that would be meaningful to people to add trust, right? Because I think there's an absence of trust existing throughout the general population on these generative models. But I wanted to keep moving down this journey, but but understand more specifically about Lambda. And can you... Can you kind of give us a, a comparative view of what Google's technology is doing and what ChatGPT is doing? Because obviously we can see that Microsoft is trying to get into the game of, of this with their big investment that they, they're looking to announce, right? And so that puts a Google and Microsoft kind of fight. Apple, again, and if you can elaborate more on what Apple's doing in this, because I think it's important for us to understand the landscape. So can you give us a bit of a comparison between the Lambdas and the ChatGPTs and and if and what uh, Apple's got cooking uh, in the background? Uh, so about Lambda versus ChatGPT, right? I think in terms of... And we wanted to specifically ask you this, Gaurav, because in fact, Brett and I were talking about this right before the call. You left Google in 2020, right? 2022, so 20, about a year ago. 2022, okay. Yeah, so we were we were wondering if Lambda feels a little bit like your um, 
like you're a strange child. Like you you invented this child and now it's it's going off and it's thriving without you or it's living a life of its own that that you're not really yeah, involved I mean, anymore. Full disclosure, like I was the product manager on that. I think the credit for the invention and the research goes to the researchers who were like brilliant team that basically worked on that. I was kind of like helping them get it out and figure out what the use cases might be. But to the question around uh, how is like Lambda compared to ChatGPT and how would the Google versus Microsoft look like once ChatGPT is integrated, let's say in Bing or other Microsoft products. So uh, let's break it down into, okay, what are the fundamental differences between Lambda and ChatGPT? So the first thing is that both of these are really large language models, and both of these are dialogue models. So there are uh, some other large language models as well. For example, GPT-3 on OpenAI side, Palm on Google side. So there are a bunch of these like language models. What ChatGPT and Lambda are doing are essentially trying to build a conversational layer on top of these models. So it's very easy to access and conversations is much easier than like, you know, calling something with API and then just having one turn in terms of interacting with the model. So both of them are like large language models. Generally, I think uh, if in a grand scheme of things, they are pretty similar in things. The way I would put it is they kind of have the same engine, but they probably have a different uh, form factor. So for example, one is probably an SUV and the other one is probably a sedan. The reason why I say that is ChatGPT's data is more oriented towards like coding queries, coding stuff, for example, like ChatGPT does really well on coding related stuff versus the kind of things that you see on the Lambda preview. If you guys have played around with the AI test kitchen app that Google has launched, it's more around like inspiration and creativity and, you know, general open-ended conversation and stuff. So the engine is the same, but the but the fine tuning that has been done on top of the engine essentially leads one to be an SUV, the other one to be a sedan. So uh, that said, I think if Google has to do something very similar to ChatGPT or ChatGPT has to do something similar to Lambda, I think that's totally possible without a lot of effort, in my opinion. So technologically, I think both of them are kind of at the same place um, or can get to a same place very easily. In terms of the second question around how the battle between Google and Microsoft might play out, that's going to be interesting. So one of the one of the media reports is, of course, Microsoft trying to or planning to use ChatGPT in Bing and other products across Microsoft Suite as well. So from Bing's perspective, I think if Microsoft is able to come up with a user interface that is really good, like a conversational user interface. So like right now, search is very archaic. If you think about it, you put in a query, you get 20 blue links or 10 blue links, and that's how it's been for the last 20 years. Sure, we have made improvements in ranking and everything, but that's how the user interface has been. Now, if Microsoft can come in and disrupt the user interface, like can you actually engage with a search engine with a chatbot? Like you can ask the queries and get those responses in a chat format. That's going to be a completely new human-computer interaction. And my thoughts about the future is that that's where we are going. We are going to have a hybrid search ecosystem where we will have a curated results. I don't think curated results are going to go away anytime soon, but we will have this like conversational interface on top of some of these intents where you can get like easily synthesized information. For example, how do you get birth certificate in Venezuela without having to go through, you know, 20 different blue links generally. So if Microsoft can do something radically different in the UX and come with that inside of Bing, that could be an interesting play on their part because it's hard to disrupt Google at this point of time by just competing in the game of 10 blue links. 
right? Exactly. It's like Google has the distribution and Google has. Because uh, Bing does the that. same thing already. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. You can't differentiate yourself that way. So that's one. Uh, so if Bing comes up with something interesting on conversational UX, I think that would be very interesting. And the second is, of course, uh, I think Microsoft also has a really strong AI presence within the company. And now with OpenAI joining them or OpenAI being like uh, one of the like major players that whose technology is available to them, I think they could do a lot of fundamentally interesting things in the office, like Azure space, for example, like helping enterprises understanding documents, helping enterprises build better chatbots. Microsoft has a chatbot product like Dialogflow as well. So they could like build much better conversational interfaces for enterprises. So I think that my view of the world is that on the search side, what Microsoft does kind of will be will lay out the path for Google in some way. If they do something radically different, Google can go in and kind of copy the things that are working and leave out the things that are not working. On the enterprise side, Google should be more scared, I feel, because Microsoft already has the reach uh, and the number of clients. And if they're able to move fast with respect to that, they could disrupt Google from this position that is thought in the industries as like being the AI leader in the enterprise space. Absolutely. You know, something that I didn't mention, but you did bring up was the chatbot functionality, right? And can we can we take the chatbot functionality outside of the web and move it into mobile? Because humanitarians predominantly are engaging with the people that they serve over mobile phones and not over Chrome or other web browsers but actually through things like WhatsApp, Viber, Telegram, et cetera. So the utilization of something like ChatGPT or Lambda or something else integrated with a functionality in Viber or WhatsApp could actually potentially, I think, create an amazing opportunity to reach a lot of people that aren't reachable right now. And do you see those types of APIs being developed and being able to be utilized? Because I think that I think that that's going to be the the real scale from the humanitarian side, right? Because we don't have people sitting at computers and asking questions. We have people on their phones. And so this idea of of having that more, you know, phone technology based or social media communication based AI as being a really impactful piece of our work. Do you see that? Is that I mean, look, I've worked a lot with Google separately on a lot of work and and I've really struggled with Google in the fact that everything has to be based on a Google login, based on the Google, based on being on the website, et cetera. And, and that's always been our difficulty because the predominance of the people that we're working with aren't accessing those types of things and don't have an email address. Uh, and so, so what are your thoughts on that? I mean, is, is that just out of, out of the realm of possibility or is that actually something that you see as the future? So I think breaking down the question, I think there are two things you're saying. The first one is mobile versus web. Can these systems be accessed on mobile phones and can be used by humanitarian actors who are not typically using laptops or browsers? And I guess the second question, maybe if I'm reading right, is like, can this be integrated with other applications that are more used by the humanitarian actors, like you brought a Viber or some of the other applications? So on the first one, I think... It's just a model like these These things are running on the server. So you can run whatever is running on the web can easily run on, on mobile phones as well, as long as you have the internet connections. I can totally see a future where these models actually become smaller and efficient that they reside on the device itself. So you can you have access to things uh, without having to have internet connection. But uh, I guess we probably, there might be some time to get there essentially. The second aspect around like powering applications, uh, 
for sure. I mean, there would be APIs and there would be use cases in different applications. Uh, but making it more specific, let's say somebody wants to learn a language. So language learning through ChatGPT, for example, would be a great application for people who are low income, who do not have all the resources to go to, let's say, an English class or a Spanish class or something like that. So I think the I think the question to ask is what are the most interesting applications that some of these things can power and what these applications uh, what applications might be most relevant for the humanitarian actors. Yeah, it's all about the use case, right? And how you build out those use cases over a period of time. I definitely understand that and and feel that. You know, something else about you that's really been very special for me about reading your profile and and getting to finally meet you and et cetera is about your coaching. And what you're doing and i felt like that was a big jump for you to come from this idea of product management and figuring out you know where the market could go and and where google needed to be etc but moving into the coaching seemed a little bit out of the ordinary what made you take that direction what made you think about that and, and go there yeah i think it's uh, it's a lot more personal uh, than professional the whole coaching aspect in my life i think i've been always involved in a lot of mentoring and coaching activities right from my like university i uh, started a group for helping students while i was in my university helping like coaching with like career coaching for my high school students and that kind of continued at different form factors over the years and while i was at google i was helping a lot of my friends and like friends of friends who were trying to get into product management which is which is kind of very competitive at this point of time. So I was just helping them with interview preparation, figuring out what the strategy should be and so on. And that kind of gives me a very, um, it is very gratifying to see somebody's success uh, full in the goal that they have sent and having played a part in it really makes me happy about that fact. So that's how I kind of have been doing it over a period of time. I just formalized it last year as a coaching business in itself, like a coaching small business in itself, because I'm right now building this startup and I'm trying to extend my runway. So it's kind of that thing which I do on the side gets me some money, but it's also something that I feel makes me happy and helps people achieve their goals. So uh, yeah, that's how I kind of got into it. And that's what I'm doing right now. Can I ask yeah. a follow-up question on that? So since we're talking about tech in the context of humanitarian causes, I'm curious if you have kind of like a, a lofty, I guess, driver uh, or motivator behind becoming a coach. Like I'm asking because from personal experience, you know, I, I love mentoring new writers. And one of my like lofty reasons behind it is because I really want there to be more voices in mainstream media. And I want to be somebody who helps facilitate, you know, new aspiring writers, diverse writers, women, non-binary people into becoming mainstream journalists themselves. And so my, I guess my BHAG, my big, hairy, audacious goal is to try to get a thousand, a thousand diverse voices, you know, in mainstream I media. <laughs> yeah, BHAG. I, I think I, I borrowed that from, um, oh gosh, some podcasts I was listening to. I wish I could credit them. But <laughs> yeah, my big, hairy, audacious goal is to get a thousand diverse voices in mainstream media. So do you have like, you know, kind of a, a motivating desire that, really ignites your passion around around helping people become project managers themselves in the tech world yeah so i think mine is a lot broader i feel that like i personally feel like i am a very empathetic person a lot of people have told me like i'm a really good coach i understand people and i'm able to like help them achieve their goals 
I started with product management coaching because that's the art or that's the like the art that I'm aware of and I'm kind of well-versed into it. But uh, if you were to ask me my big, hairy, audacious goal, it's probably that I feel that everybody in this world should actually have a coach, a life coach or a professional coach or an executive coach. Like I've had several coaches throughout my like professional careers in the last couple of years. And I've, I felt the difference having a good coach can make on somebody's life. The challenge is that people don't realize, first of all, that coaching is for everyone. They just think that coaching is for CEOs. And the second thing is like coaching is expensive. Like uh, some of these like reasonably good coaches charge anywhere from a few hundred dollars to like thousands of dollars per session. So if if there is anything like a goal where I would want to reach to, it's like everybody in the world kind of has the education that, hey, a coach can actually change whatever like you want to improve in your life and they can help you with that. And uh, maybe I don't have like a specific number, but uh, yeah, that's kind of the motivation or the one of my guiding principles where I would want the world to kind of move towards. I love that. And I definitely think we need more empathy in tech. So I really admire your approach. Do you think that um, this is a, is it uh, endemic across a lot of the tech industry that people are giving back? Do you see this? I mean, I, I see a lot of companies with their .orgs, et cetera, trying to work on the philanthropy side. And that obviously has both empathetic or understanding reasons, but also monetary reasons behind it for tax, et cetera, and all those things. But in general, do you see your individuals, your colleagues, are they also looking and, and acting like you are? Are they, are they taking the initiatives like you're doing as well? I think I've seen this happen more recently, like with all the layoffs and everything in the last couple of uh, months or quarters, I've seen a lot of people just reaching out and offering help over LinkedIn and generally across other channels. So I would say that's definitely happening. It also boils down to the amount of time that you have and what are the priorities in your life. So I guess I wouldn't say I see a lot of people getting into this space, but more recently with everything happening with the economy, I think more and more people are coming out and helping each other. And that's just great to see. That's awesome. I want to turn back into the tech a little bit, just because I'm so interested in hearing about your thoughts and understanding the the high level technology pieces that you're bringing to the table that you've been able to engage in at Google and et cetera. But you know, the humanitarian sector is really not the most technology savvy group of folks out there, right? We're really good at what you call truck and chuck. So we're really good at putting stuff in a truck and taking it somewhere and taking it out of the truck and giving it to somebody. And there's there's something to be said for that, right? There is a place and a time for that to happen. But but the reality is, is that it needs to shift because uh, I was I was having a conversation earlier today with somebody in they were talking about Kenya and uh, M-Pesa and mobile phones, where Kenya went from being a non-mobile phone country to having mobile phones and then having the largest saturation of mobile phones of pretty much any country in the world and having the largest you know, uh, mobile money uh, functionality through M-Pesa there. They made that digital jump, right? And the thing was, I was saying, you know, can you imagine the person that gets on the internet today, first time on the internet, and then they're accessing chat GPT? They've not had to go through, or Lambda, right? They've not had to go through all the things that we went through, you know, in the past. And they're like, wow, this is great. You know, this really works. It talks to me and everything. And so I want to hear from you, like, 
with a little bit of knowledge that you might have in the humanitarian sector and people in need and how to service people in need and, and provide assistance to them, what are the new things that technology can provide us? What are some of those things that you saw that you were like, you know, this could really work to help people um, that humanitarians might not know about, but because you're in the tech sector, you're, you're already, you know, in that in, in an in-depth way. At some point, I'd love us to get to the, like thinking of coaching, coaching humanitarian organizations, and they could use coaching on data curation, as we were talking about, like how should groups think about reporting in the age of AI, because you're going to have these AIs, these chatbots accessing your information. So how can you optimize what you publish for processing? So if we could touch on that later. So uh, Chris, to your question, like, can you give me a few examples of, let's say, general humanitarian areas where people are operating in? Maybe based on that, I can give you a few specifics. Sure. So you're in the middle of a crisis. Let's use Ukraine as the example. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, high, highly technological savvy population. And um, they need to be able to access services, both from the NGOs and from um, from government, right? So what part of technology in using google uh, as an example what can google do to to enhance that experience of them being able to access services faster and more succinctly is it um you know and, and i know it, it might not be a, a worthy question it's just something to me is like one of the biggest gaps that humanitarians have is the understanding of what technology is available for them to use and it's trying to to really grasp um What's out there? Because people are going to be wearing VR goggles, right, in in the areas that we're working in. But uh, so that use case doesn't work. But are there other use cases of things? Because you've mentioned, like, for example, Palm. I've never heard of Palm, you know, that litany of Google products that are out there that we have no access. Well, not that we don't have access to, but that we don't know about. Like, what are what are some of the maybe maybe the way to reframe the question? So let me start over and I'll reframe the question in this way. What are some of the products that Google has that you think that could be really beneficial to the humanitarian sector in providing services to people in need? And do you have use cases that you've seen with public services or with governments that Google has been able to enhance the way that they work? Uh, Are there different products that Google has that you think could really expand that work? Yeah. I don't know if I'm the best person to answer this, but I'll break it down into maybe just understanding the crisis situation that we are talking about. Let's say when COVID hit, like the first few weeks of COVID, uh, or when there was this shortage of oxygen supplies in India and oxygen supply of hospitals in the US, like that was like a big crisis that we were thinking about inside of Google and how can we help? So I think fundamentally in these times of crisis, there are three things in my opinion that are critical. The first one is collaboration and communication between people. So whoever are like people who are helping or people who are in the need, they need like help or they need to be communicated, uh, like they need communication for that. The second one is like the information, like people who are by themselves, like can they access the right set of information? Where is, let's say the bombing happening, where should I not go and having that information real time? And then the third one is just the resources, like uh, how do you get right resources to the right people and where do you source resources from? What does the supply chain look like? Maybe there are others as well, but these are kind of like the three main areas that I feel are critical in crisis. 
like collaboration between folks, information, uh, and then like resourcing. Uh, Google does a lot of work on on the information part, especially given that it's like a search engine company. Like Google tries really hard to you know add stuff into maps, uh, like where are let's say roadblocks to where there is like flooding or earthquakes or things like that. Like in some of these cases, like some of and some of these things happen like almost near real time because people submit their uh, responses that hey this road is closed or there is this like issue happening here and google quickly identifies and puts a red alert in that particular area so i think search is like a well positioned product for that and google tries to do a lot there is a specific team for that uh, it's i think part of google.org if i'm not wrong but there is a specific team that focuses on crisis and how can google help with respect to that yeah, absolutely. No, I've worked a lot with Google.org, and it's a good team and a strong team. And I've worked a lot with maps and Earth with being able to identify areas and being able to map them and being able to showcase them. I think that that's great. But I think that that question that I was asking kind of segues into a separate question, which is the idea of coaching humanitarian organizations around technology and that huge gap, right? Because what we have is this situation where technology companies are looked at as service providers to humanitarian organizations versus facilitators of the utilization of technology. And I think that there's something there to that piece. And I don't think people talk about it. I mean, have you ever even considered that as, as being a market, even for your coaching outside of the product manager coaching, actually being a coach for humanitarian organizations to understand how technology can really benefit them in, in the work that they do? This is a this is a really good question. Like, I guess the the premise of the question is that there's a lot of technological advancements that uh, that is happening right now, and people who should be knowing about these things aren't probably as well versed into these things. And uh, I personally haven't like thought about engaging with like the humanitarian actors, but I would love to. If there is an opportunity, feel free to like sign me up to like uh, <laughs> educate people about anything that I possibly can. I would. Well, you're here up. with us right now, so you're doing it already. <laughs> so congratulations. For sure. But I think one general thing that uh, that I want to highlight is like the pace of technological innovation right now is really, really high. Like this is uh, this is one of those things that uh, that is exciting, but also needs to be thought through really well because we are in this like exponential growth curve of technology at this point of time like as humans we are trained to think linearly so the advances that have happened let's say in the last 8 years it's not going to take same amount of time to make similar advances or same level of advances in the future right so the technology is growing very very exponentially like exponentially at this point of time and today more than ever it's important that our upskilling efforts are fast and uh, more efficient than before so yeah, I mean, there is need for mentoring and coaching in, in the humanitarian side, and I'd love to help if there is a way I can. And I have a follow-up question for Chris, actually. Um, it's, it's probably a, a very hairy question, going back to that word, but how does the, you know, how does the funding cycles of the humanitarian sector influence the rate at which new technology is, is developed? Because I know I have just very, very little experience in, in working for nonprofits and NGOs. And I know that funding makes such a huge, funding influences everything, you know? So how does that influence? You know, I'm going to, I'm going to counter it a little bit. I tend to believe that funding is easy to get. The problem is, is that the administration behind the funding, the ability for procurement to allow you to iterate, to allow you to innovate 
is the biggest stumbling block. Innovative procurement in the humanitarian sector is absent. Um, We use procurement models based on lack of trust and risk aversion. And innovation and the use of technology is based on the complete opposite, which is the idea of being able to have an appetite for risk so that you can actually try new things and do new things. So I would actually say that the money is not the problem at all. It's administratively them allowing you to spend that money in a way that allows you to grow and to to scale and to iterate is the biggest issue um, that's there. And in contrast, in Silicon Valley and in in tech sectors, it's all about failing fast, failing forward as rapidly as you possibly can. And imagine the the conversation that you have about failure and people are starving. Right. right. So it's intrinsic to the whole part of the work that the risk aversion has sat there. And so how do you create the opportunity to pilot? How do you create the opportunity to think outside of whatever box that you're in to be able to test and to iterate, to fail, to succeed, to scale in a situation where people are in need. Right. And that's the biggest difficulty in the humanitarian sector right. Right the, now around innovation and technology. The stakes are so much higher. Are there any yeah. kind of little like sand, sandbox kind of experiments going on for lack of a better word? Of course, absolutely. Um, there's, uh, there. you know, I, you've probably heard this statement before, but building the plane while you're flying it kind of thing. What we're seeing is, or what I'm seeing at least with a lot of the, the people that I work with, is that their risk appetite is opening up because they're seeing the speed at which things are changing in the way that they're able to assist people by the implementation and use of technology. So if you can do baby steps through this process, do a chat bot, add an API that allows money to be sent to the person, add facial recognition to verify who the person is, you know, through the chat bot or whatever, and you keep adding these little baby steps, And the mentality, I think, is also shifting in the humanitarian sector around platforms and out-of-the-box solutions. Traditionally, it was you buy a Microsoft, you buy a a Salesforce or whatever. That's how it was always done. But now what they're looking at is API building blocks. So there is a huge shift in the humanitarian sector around building that green Lego square. You know, you buy the green Lego square. And then you buy a bag of Legos, you know, or or different pieces that you can build in to add on to that green Lego square. And that's the new mentality that's coming. I think that's the shift when we talk to innovators in the humanitarian sector. That's what they're shooting for. Um, but again, the systems have to be able to accommodate for that. So while the mindset is changing, the systems are a lot slower. It's you got a lot of speedboats around the Titanic. Right. And those speedboats are moving, but the Titanic is not shifting very quickly uh, to get away from that iceberg. And I think you already said this, but everything's mobile first for the most part or not everything, but it's majority and in most cases mobile first. Well, well, at least for me, it is. I mean, some are still not that way. Right. There's still some truck and chucks out there. But but the reality is, is the 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 figure that I use is 70 percent of all humanitarian action should be able to be conducted over the mobile phone. Yeah. Right. 30% are the people that are vulnerable or have disability are the aged, et cetera, that we can't reach that are difficult to reach that are out of network, you know, et cetera. But that 70%, that should be our goal is to reach 70% of the populations we're trying to serve over the mobile phone and provide every service that 
typically would be possible in a face-to-face environment over the phone. So that's that's the mentality that we use in the technologies that we develop and in, in, in the work that we do with our clients. So Garab, you have your marching orders now. Yeah, <laughs> this is Brent. I was just going to ask you about that. The same thing, like, so like I know a lot of humanitarian actors would like to experiment with Lambda and Lambda powered applications. And one of them I can think of is you have the International Aid Transparency Initiative, and they encourage humanitarian organizations to share information on aid activities by converting it into machine readable XML code. And obviously Lambda can dig into these publicly published XML files and process them. So like approaching Google about, you know, testing some of these sort of applications and looking at how Lambda can answer queries about humanitarian operations using this open data. Like what kind of challenges do you think we would face approaching Google for help in this area, for example, or in other areas? Like what, from your vantage point, what could we benefit from knowing? So Brent, your question, what kind of data are we talking about? Is this structured data? Is this unstructured data? Yeah, it's highly structured um, XML code. And so um, IATI, it's an XML standard. And they, depending upon how you count the elements and attributes, there's over 500 um, key value pairs. Mm. And, you know, very complex relationships between, you know, an aid activity and when it took place or when it was planned and who funded it and what are the results and target results and things like that. So, you know, it's highly structured data. And I've noticed that just in the last several months, you could actually query IATI data a little bit through Google. It's interesting, it'll actually bring it up. And most of this data is published in XML. So it's kind of cool to be able to say, you know, who's working in Bangladesh, and then just type in IATI or something like that. And some of the search results will come up from IATI. So that's amazing. But it'd be nice to be able to query this huge corpus of XML data in a in a way that you have trust in what what it's surfacing. So it'd be cool to just isolate IATI data, Lambda, just look at IATI data. You know, it would be great to approach Google for help in that area to test, even just to test that. I think there are two things here to think about. The first is just from the technology perspective, how much is Lambda the right technology to think about what you're trying to do? And then the second thing is, what might it take to work with Google and you know reach out to them and engage them on this or get them excited so they are interested to work with the uh, with the project. On the tech side, I I feel that like Lambda or these like open ended chat models are probably not going to solve the problem completely by themselves. Like you, pro- it, it's probably going to be hard to get something that is uh, factually correct and something that is, you know, explicitly figure out which information should be retrieved for what query. I feel that two-pronged approach probably might be the best approach here. The first one is you can have the large language models which can convert this into a query. And the second part, this query can go into the system and then pick out which one is the most relevant response to, to the initial query that you had asked. So I think a two-pronged system probably would work better than uh, just relying on something like Lambda. There is work happening around something called Action Transformers. This is an ex-Google team trying to build a company where they are trying to go from an open-ended conversation into uh, an API call, for example, directly. That might be something of interest and you might want to look into that. The company name is called Adept. So that's the the first part. The second part is if you still think like working with Google might be interesting, 
there are a bunch of channels through which you can reach out. I think because this is a humanitarian effort, I think finding somebody in the google.org and chatting with them would make the most sense. Thank you so much. I worked at the United Nations a long time ago for a group called UNISAT that provides satellite imagery to humanitarian organizations. And I and I was there when Google Earth more or less got launched. And I remember telling my boss, hey, check this out. You know, we should get in touch with them. And it was, um, you know, it took a lot of work to get through the different, the gatekeepers, the, the you know, the hurdles to get through to them. But now Google and UNISAT are, are great partners. So, you know, it definitely can be done. And it's uh, wonderful to see what can be accomplished, you know, through hard work of, you know, getting people to work together. And yeah, for sure. One quick thing just changing subjects. And we talked about this a little earlier, you know, coaching and coaching humanitarian organizations. And a lot of groups are, are really interested in how they can curate their digital data in 2023 and in the future, you know, for access by Google search engines and these models. So should we just be publishing as usual in XML code and websites and whatnot? Any thoughts on data publishing and data sharing, open data sharing? So one of the things that the humanitarian community can do to you know foster this openness in the data sharing ecosystem and other aspect like other organizations using this data could be yeah for sure like publishing data sets that are more relevant so any work that you guys are doing i'm sure you deal with a lot of data so if you're able to provide clean data for those things and maybe index it out in different products which which have data sets listed out that would be great and uh, the use cases here for, uh, like we were talking about earlier could be somebody in the community can take that data set and build a QA system on top of that that could be useful for somebody else for example so i don't know if i'm uh, helping too much here but like long story short publishing clean data is is something that would be very useful for these models because quality of data really matters for these AI and machine learning models. And if you have like clean data published from the work that you're doing, that could potentially help the future efforts. There's so much going on right now around this discussion, but most of it actually, when we talk about PIIs is going more on identity. So really talking about distributed ledger use of identity authentication, creation of tokens, and then the ability to be able to share it over the token with validated users. So that's the, the big push that's happening right now because it, it works, right? It's working in the government sectors where you can go online and uh, say, is Chris 18, right? And then you can get three validated answers that, that say, yes, Chris is 18. The Chamber of Commerce and the Driver's License Authority says it's, it's who he is, et cetera. So that type of thing, I think, is where, where we're headed. Uh, on the data sharing pieces, tokenizing it, and then creating keys for people to open it through validated use. Christopher, how does that relate to AI specifically, though? Because I like I can I consider that more of like a decentralized data it thing. Is. Yeah. Thinking about the way these things are trained, you know, you're using Reddit Reddit conversations, and obviously we need to encourage humanitarian actors to have digital conversations and create lists of queries that they'd love to ask a chatbot and maybe uh, sample outputs and things like that. I, I think we need to do more to, to create these training data sets and training utilities and fine-tuning utilities to contribute to this effort. So 
Yeah, I think you make a really good point. I think it's important. Like, if it's there in the public domain, then the then the crawlers will figure it out and use it for training the models. So, if the conversations are not already happening on digital platforms, I think it might be good to get things in there, and that way it it could be picked up directly by these models. And these models are going to play a huge role in the future, right? Because kids, from kids to children, like school going population, to everybody will start using these models more and more. as we get the factuality bias and all those type of challenges out of the way so uh, totally agree with you i think digital conversations would be the key here hey christopher any um any thoughts before we wrap things up i want to say thank you to gaurav for taking the time and and for you brent uh, i mean i think this issue of bringing the humanitarian sector into the 21st century is a super big conversation a super important conversation and trying to understand what that entails right how could we have open conversations on situations in humanitarian settings over something like reddit i don't know one organization in the humanitarian sector that uses reddit for anything right or even the people that we're serving in most of the cases don't even know what reddit is and and how to utilize it right they they know that how to pick up a phone and call the ngo and ask them a question so so there's there's a long journey here that we need to get to and being able to identify these opportunities to where by accessing these technologies it creates a benefit and an impact to the people in need i think being able to get that narrative right is going to be really important and then be able to facilitate the opportunity uh, for those things to happen is going to be really important as well but you know i really really am happy and and thankful garav for for you to be here today and and uh, thankful to you brent and and megan for taking the time to to allow us to have this chat And Gaurav, I'll leave the last word to you. Is there a final word or a final thing you want to say to to kind of bring us to a close? And and one good thing, Gaurav, we promised you a, a special question too. If you could envision a futuristic AI application, what would you love to see exist? We asked this to all our guests, so we'd love to hear your thoughts on that too, along with your closing message. Sure. So starting with the application that I would love to see in the future. So. I love to eat good food but I really hate cooking. So I'd love to see an AI chef that is a combination of like smart machine learning computer vision language model along with robotics integrated. So I just say that hey make me a chicken lasagna and uh, that thing basically figures out what's in my fridge, what needs to be ordered, the things get to the home like this robot kind of helps me with those things and cook something for me. without having to you know enter the kitchen i would love to see a technology like that in my house someday <laughs> i love that I, awesome. i'm a, i'm a connoisseur of uh, the perfect taco the perfect you know taco truck taco so i'd, I'd love that sure once I, yeah once i get my yeah, chef i'll invite you over rent and we can have our our tacos in my kitchen that's awesome It was great chatting with you guys, and I had a lot of fun. Learned a lot of things about the humanitarian uh, actors and the the work that you are doing. I think it's really important work. I'm glad to be glad to be part of it and helping in whatever small way I can to educate the community. Thanks, Gaurav. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate your time and your effort. And uh, I will be searching for you when uh, some humanitarian agencies need some coaches. Tell them about how technology. can really help them benefit those people in need that we're trying to serve. So thanks again and on behalf of Humanitarian AI today it's been a wonderful experience and uh see you all soon.
And thank you all so much. This has been fantastic. Bye.